Welcome to the Impact Masters Commission Bible Study Podcast. Join us as we study the Bible verse by verse. I'm your host, Pastor Josh Hawkins. We're going to have some deep, thoughtful, and hopefully helpful discussions to try and discover together what it means to be the followers of Jesus. Well, I just, I, I learned that second time that I, that I choked, I learned if I don't panic, cause, cause I immediately like went <gasps> like that and that made it worse. I was like, so you got to chill. Cause I think I could have dislodged it if I had just gone, <sighs> you know, like that. But instead I sucked it in I've learned you just don't pant, just chill. And then you can just, just like, like work through and it's going to be okay. But your body, your, your body goes into fight or flight, you know, and that's, and Are you just going to sit there in the middle of everybody? Don't you feel conspicuous? You know, when I used to, when I used to teach, uh, <laughs> I used to teach uh, the middle school uh, class when I was, when I was about 18, I started teaching the middle school Sunday school class on Sunday mornings. And uh, people would just walk in like a half hour late. So we, we started this practice of because we always sat in a circle like this it was the best way to have conversation and so I started this practice of the last person that's walked in has to sit in a chair in the middle of the circle where everybody's looking at him and people w- stopped being late like immediately yeah because nobody wanted to be sitting there it just made people uncomfortable and I have had people talk to me like now and it's been that was 25 years ago and now people are like, I've had people be like, I used to beg my mom to be on time for church because I didn't want to be stuck in the, in the middle seat. It's like, I'm glad you remember that. Do you remember anything we talked about? Not really. Okay, well, let's go to First Timothy 3 then. I can sit back there. I wish it would be so cool if they, if they did like a virtual reality of the Bible. Awesome. It's probably going to happen. You know, you can go to the to the. Uh, they're building the they're building the Tower of Babel down there by the by the. That's what they said. the The guy that's built the guy that built the Noah's Ark thing, and the Creation Museum, is now doing a Tower of Babel exhibit, which I'm like. I don't think that's a great idea. I I have a problem with this. 
But he is building it specifically to combat CRT. So help me understand that. I don't know. But anyway. Yeah, right? I'm like, the first thing is no one I've ever met that, that talks all the time about CRT and is like mad about CRT has been able to tell me what CRT actually is. None of them. Never had anybody that freaking out about CRT in the schools or CRT in the whatever can actually tell me what it is. It's a boogeyman. No, it's critical race theory. Okay, It is a way of interpreting history through the lens of uh, people that weren't the... Uh, you know, the, the dominant group of people in that time in history, okay? So it's like looking at history through a, through the, the lens of a slave during, you know, pre-Civil War times or through the lens of an immigrant during, you know, and, and, and trying to see that history, that the way things were happening and the things that were happening at that time would have seemed very different to that kind of person than to, say, a... A, an educated white man who's the one who's written all of the histories we have. Does that make sense? And that's what, that's what CRT actually is. But what they would tell you it is is a whole other whole like thing. And they're really upset about all these things, which if it was all those things, then I would agree, but it's really not. And yeah, anyway, it's, it's a big thing. You're going to hear about it at some point if you haven't heard about it already. I think my Wait, what does it have to do with the... With what? Well, see, that's the thing, is this guy who wants to build this thing, it, he wants the true history of race. Which is pretty ridiculous because the people in Bible times didn't have a, even have a concept of race. That's not how they thought about people. There was no such thing as whiteness. Um, and... Which, which that's really what race is, is whiteness and non-whiteness. That's really what the whole conversation around race is um, and has been for the last 200-some years. Say it was 1,600, so it would be 400 years now. Um, but the, and so to, to talk about a biblical idea of race, of, of race doesn't make any sense at all. It doesn't. Um, but he's saying that he's going to build this Tower of Babel thing so that we can see where, you know, the, the, that story of where all the nations began and, and the different, you know, ethnic groups came from this, this moment in human history where God separated the people. Anyway, I just think it's doomed to ugliness, which I would never go anyway, but... It just doesn't seem like a great idea, especially for this particular person to talk to us about the history of race. Anyway. Is he white? Very much. <laughs> yeah, he's not just white. He's, like, extremely white. And I say not, I don't just mean, like, like you know, I'm not saying he's pale. I'm saying that he... Ken Ham. Ken Ham. Saying that he is... He is, he is, I'm saying he is, he is a person who, who has very,
his con his concept of race and or racism is not going to be one that makes sense to any any of you. It won't because he's he's viewing racism only through a white lens, and that's you, that's not even. Yes. My issue is it is really cool. And if we were just talking about I, I have no problem with the idea of a creation museum or an ark encounter, fine. My issue is multiple places and in multiple ways, both in the creation museum and in the ark encounter, you are told that if you disagree with their particular interpretation of the book of Genesis, then you are siding with Satan. There's literally a little like thing of Satan kind of rubbing his hands with a sign that says, if I can get you to think differently about creation or, or the flood or whatever, then I'm winning basically. And, and I have a huge problem with that because the first few chapters of the book of Genesis have been interpreted in different ways since before Christ. Even the Jewish people had different ways of interpreting the, the book of Genesis and the flood and the, and the Garden of Eden narratives. So I'm not, I'm not even saying that, he's, that his interpretation is wrong. What I'm saying is we need to be generous in, in, in areas of Bible interpretation like this, we're not talking about is Jesus the Son of God, yes or no. We're talking about what are what does this how should we interpret this book? And there's a very wide spectrum of lovers of Jesus who interpret the book differently than Ken Ham does. And and so the fact that he would say, if you don't interpret this book like me, you're you're going to hell or you're on the devil's side. I have a ooh, I have a big problem with that. Big, big, big problem with that. Which is why I'll never go. And if I did, I'd probably just be giggling through the whole thing. <laughs> just making fun of it. Do you ever see the videos of John Christ at the at the Ark Encounter? They're pretty hilarious actually. Yeah, he he went and did videos of <laughs> from there. Uh, that were pretty hilarious. Anyway, shall we open our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3? Or are there other things you would like to talk about? Because I'm fine with just chatting and taking a week off of our in-depth study of Timothy. So if you have questions, don't. We're not going to talk about Nephilim. Don't even ask. Although I will say... That the Tower of Babel has a whole lot to do with the with the angelic and demonic realms, and much more than we've ever been taught, because that was the moment in human history when God said, "I am done dealing with humanity as a whole, and I'm going to create a people of, of my own 
that I will use as priests for the rest of mankind, and through them will come Messiah. Because the very next chapter after the whole Tower of Babel thing is when he calls Abraham. It's that very next chapter. This is God ceasing to work with humanity en masse and beginning to call forth prospective new atoms from mankind that would rise up and that would be, uh, you know, God would be using this particular family to... uh, God had given us opportunity after opportunity to say yes to him and we kept chasing after other things and other other you know and so God gave us over that is what that is what God does when we continually reject him eventually he says fine go it is the story of the prodigal son did did the father of the of the prodigal son tell him no, you have to stay. No, you can't take this money and run off. Did he do that? No, he didn't. He knew his son's mind was made up, so he said, fine, go. In hopes, not because he didn't love his son, because he did love his son, and he knew that confining him at home was not going to save him. In fact, it would just build up more animosity toward him. So he said, go. He gave him over to the world in hopes that when he got face-to-face with what the world was really like, that he would come home, which is exactly what happened. And when he came home, he welcomed him home. All right. No other thoughts, questions, queries, understandings, things you want to talk about? Uh, the the last Sunday of November. Oh, November twenty eighth. Oh, it's just not. Yeah. I do too. No, they don't. And I thought last year they were. They had told me last year they were planning on celebrating Advent, and I was like, great. And I actually sent Pastor Sarah a bunch of like. Uh, uh, materials and stuff around Advent, and then they didn't do anything with it. Yeah. And I was like, huh, that's di- that's disappointing. Like, obviously, we celebrate Christmas. And oh, like, sure. Series sure, sure. Everything, but I just feel like the ceremony of Advent with the candles and everything, like, I just, it was always like a part of Christmas that I could really seriously growing up in yeah. the house and everything. So it's just really weird. I've never gone to a church that didn't do it. The Christian calendar is it, it it's awesome i love it i think it's it's but see that's <laughs> this is a larger conversation because what what is the church meant to be about jesus well yes <laughs> but like what are we doing fellowship worship well okay well that's the thing is it the, because the church has multiple functions right but to me the primary function of the church is to uh, is discipleship. Okay, that 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 to me is should be the primary function of the church. And what is discipleship? That means helping each other to engage with Christ in a way that forms us into His image. Through that, now also for me, evangelism and discipleship are the same thing. I believe they are one and the same. I believe that 
not only is it through people who are being formed in Christ's image that others will be drawn into the church, but also you're not actually evangelized until you have begun to be discipled. That's my opinion. Just because you walk down to an altar and pray a prayer and cry a few tears or whatever does not mean you're a Jesus follower. might be the beginning, but you're not a Jesus follower until you're actually following Jesus. And I would go so far as to say you're not saved unless you're actually following Jesus. Which I know there's a lot of people who would not be happy with what I just said. But that is how... that. If there is no change in your life whatsoever, then did that prayer do anything? No. I don't think so. No. We talked about that last week. Uh, Rob was preaching on that a little bit. Just through learning in Old Testament studies. Really? New Testament. It's gonna say. It's gonna say. I don't know. Uh, that's interesting that you would. That you would. It's interesting that you would learn that in Old Testament survey. <laughs> Since it's not talking about the church at all. But I was having. I was having this conversation with my wife yesterday because she was asking me about. We were talking about people in the church who. Not only do they. Not act like Jesus at all, but have no. They don't even care that they don't act like Jesus. It's not even important to them. She's like, help me understand how someone who says they love Jesus but lives you know, a lifestyle that is completely contrary to anything Jesus taught us to do or to be, how, are they really saved? I said, no, they're not, actually. They might think they are, but I don't think they are. Exactly. This is who God's called us to be. Now, are we complete? Are any of us perfect? Are any of us com- done with our process of of sanctification? And no, no, of course not. We're all going to have moments and difficulties. That, and the grace of God is there for that. Absolutely. The question is, if we aren't, if our life isn't pointed towards Christ, are we saved? And that's the issue. What do we mean by saved? What are you being saved from? We talked about this two weeks ago. What are we being saved from? Sin, correct. We're not not being saved from hell. No. I mean, yes, we... Sure, we're being saved... We're We're being saved from hell. That's absolutely true. But the only reason hell... The only reason hell is hell is because... Of sin. <coughs> That's the only reason that, that anybody experiences hell. And let me ask you this. When do we go to hell? After judgment. Wrong. When we die. Wrong. When we'll be now. Right now. We're in hell. Oh, you're you're right. either in heaven or in hell right now. Did you think heaven was a, a place far off somewhere that you would actually get on a train and go to? Like, you know, Hogwarts? No. I mean, I've never been to heaven. So really yes, you have. And here's the thing. Yes, you have. You, if you are in Christ, you are seated right now with Christ in heavenly places. So you're in heaven. This my spirit? No, you, right now. Here, this moment. So it's also in hell? No. No. Are you, are you in Christ, yes or no? then you're not in hell, you're in heaven. 
your eternal life has already begun. Well, no, eternity is always in play. But when we begin to experience eternal life is when we first begin to be in relationship with Christ. Heaven and hell are much less places than they are the actual status of your soul at a given time. Okay? There... Uh, is is you know uh, the is there a throne of God? Is it, yeah, but it's not a three dimensional thing where where I can uh, put it a point point to it on a map or pull up a, a a map of the universe and say this is where the throne of God is. That doesn't make any sense. That's not how God works. That's not that's not. You know, we have to think beyond our three dimensional existences. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, and so are you right here, right now, because your life has been hidden with Christ in God. That's where you are. So you, because you have trusted in Jesus, because you are being saved, you are in heaven in this moment. Prior to your connection to Christ, you were in hell. It may not have seemed like heaven or hell. It may not seem like heaven or hell right now. But it is, in fact, and the only difference is when you leave your body behind, you escape the three-dimensional uh, tunnel vision, and you'll be able to see your, and experience your existence as it truly is. There's no grand desk that you walk up to. I know you've seen it, or Peter at the pearly gates. All of that's non-biblical. It's not anything. It's is there a book of life? Yes, the Bible talks about a book of life. But it isn't. But this isn't like you don't walk up to a desk where there's an angel who's going to say, oh, you're going to go to the left, or you're going to go to the right. Now, there is a day of judgment that Jesus talks about in others where, where the sheep and the goats will be separated from each other. But that's, a, that's not the day you die. Well, I'm not, we're not entirely sure. And I don't know that Jesus was actually pointing at a specific day or if he was pointing at a reality that would, that would take place. Does that make sense? I, 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 we need to, God is bigger than time. So we need to kind of think outside of the walls of, of time a little bit, which is very difficult for us. Uh, oh, well, see, okay. The, so Jesus, you, it, that's a metaphor. But in, in Jesus' metaphor, he says uh, that at the end of days that everyone will be gathered before Christ and that the sheep, the believers, will be led off and, and inherit the Father's kingdom and the goats will be sent off. And here's the thing, and here's the scary thing. Some of those goats are going to look at Jesus and say, I thought I was a sheep. And they're going to say stuff like, Lord, Lord, did I not cast out demons, do miracles, etc. in your name? And Jesus is going to look at him and say, depart from me, you evildoer, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. And they're going to be shocked. They're going to be shocked. Now, what Jesus puts out there as the, as the kind of sign of sheepness, Okay, can we say it that way? 
is did you feed hungry people? Did you clothe naked people? Did you visit sick people? Did you visit people that were in prison? Jesus said, I was sick. I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was I was homeless. You didn't give me a place to stay. I was naked and you gave me no clothes. These are the kinds of things Jesus puts out there. And the goats are going to say to him, when did I see you hungry? When did I see you naked? When did I see you homeless? And Jesus is going to say, you know, those people that you did see hungry and naked and homeless and you didn't do anything for them, that was me. And the opposite conversation happens with the sheep where Jesus says, you're welcome into the kingdom. Why? Because when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink when I was... Now, it would be really easy to go from that conversation to a legalistic interpretation of, therefore, if you have never fed a hungry person or what, da, 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 then you are going to hell. And that is, that's what we call works righteousness. And we're not interested in that. The way we need to think about it is this. If you have been formed by Christ into the kind of person who has compassion on those around you who are hurting, then the Spirit of God is at work in you. Works do not save us. The good works that we do do not save us. But if we have not, if we're not doing good works, we're probably not saved. Does that make sense? Okay? Because people that, have, that are living out a life in relationship to Christ are, will begin to do the things that Jesus loves to do. Because you always act like the people you spend time with. And if Jesus is your master and you're his apprentice, that's, the word, that's what the word disciple means, apprentice. First you watch what the master does, then you attempt what the master does while the master's watching and then you become the master and teach someone else how to do it that's it this is we watch what jesus is doing we do what jesus is doing with jesus and then we teach others to do what jesus is doing this is what the master apprentice relationship looks like we spend time with him we become like him we do what he does that's what Je that's why jesus had all these guys that were hanging out with him for three-ish three years during his earthly ministry. He didn't want them to just preach the words he was preaching. He wanted them to live the life he was living, to carry the value system he was carrying. Jesus was giving them an entirely new way of seeing and being in the world. And that's what Christianity is. And when we're saved, we're being saved from sin, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, is what? It's a pattern. It's a way of, of being and understanding in the world. And when we're saved, we're saved from that pattern. We're saved from that way of seeing and being in the world. That's what we're saved from. And it is that way of seeing and being in the world that leads to death, the ultimate death, which is called hell. It is destructive to us as God imagers to act in a way that is not like God. <coughs> and the ultimate destruction is eternal destruction, hell. 
Okay, but Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and life more abundant. And he preached sermons like, blessed are they. The life of the gods belongs to the ones who are poor in spirit, are meek, hunger for righteousness. Do you see? God says to us, God said to us long ago, I set before you life and death, choose life. That's what he's calling us to. Does all this make sense? Do you see why it's a destructive thing to tell someone, if you want to be saved, just come up here and pray this prayer and, and make it seem like that's all there is to it? When it's far more, because what you are doing in dedicating your life to Christ is exactly that. You're dedicating your life to Christ. He becomes your master. You become his apprentice. How many of you have watched The Karate Kid and not the Jaden Smith version? That one's still good. I've seen the same No. It's not the same thing at all, not even a little bit. No, because the new one has Justin Bieber's song in it. Oh my gosh, that is not why it's different. Or Cobra Kai. Has anybody watched Cobra Kai? Cobra Kai is so great. Yeah, I'm so excited. I haven't watched season three yet. I know. I haven't watched it. I watched season one and two, and I have yet to watch season three. Anyway, my kids watched it the first day it came out, you know, but I and I just I haven't watched it yet because I probably want to go back and rewatch the whole thing from the beginning. But anyway, no, Mr. Miyagi at the beginning of his time with Daniel, before he teaches him anything, he says to him, "We're going to make." A pact, you and I. He says, we're in an ancient pact, and this is what it is. I'll be the teacher, and you be the student. You do what I tell you to do. That's the pact. And in that moment, when Daniel said, okay, I'll do that, Daniel became the apprentice, and Mr. Miyagi became the master. And even though Daniel, for a lot of the time, did not understand the stuff that Mr. Miyagi was telling him to do, or why it was important that he do the things Mr. Miyagi told him to do, the way Mr. Miyagi told him to do them, he still did it. Because that's the master and I'm the apprentice. Okay, so when Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this, wax on, wax off, okay? That, that's, <laughs> you gotta go. And it was only later on... When Daniel's like, you're not teaching me karate, you're just teaching me that, and then, and then he does the whole thing, you know, and all of a sudden it becomes clear that all these motions, he's putting, building muscle memory into Daniel's body. But Daniel didn't know that. He didn't understand it. He was being taught how to fight, and nobody ever told him that's what was happening. And when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, and, you're like, and we just throw that away as if it's nothing... We, we, we have stopped being the apprentice and we have assumed that we are the master. When Jesus says, pray, uh, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, and we just kind of don't even pay attention to that, we have, we have stopped be being the apprentice and we have become the master. And that is, that is not how you become a follower. That is not being a follower of Jesus. Most of my life, 
I was a student of Paul, and I was a student of the other New Testament epistles, and I read the stories about Jesus' miracles, but I had no grid for Jesus' teaching at all. None. I didn't know what the what, what I didn't know what the Sermon on the Mount was about. I knew it existed, but and I had even read it, but I didn't it didn't really impact my life. Because salvation was about Jesus died on the cross to forgive my sins. And that was the end. But if that's all the further you get, you are not saved. Now, we're not talking about examples where someone at the end of their life realizes that they've made a mistake and they repent and they ask for Christ's mercy. I think that God gives them mercy, but I tell you what, they've got a lot of learning to do. So in my opinion, what the church should be doing is helping people to be formed in the image of Christ. Advent and Lent and the rest of the Christian calendar are all ways that earlier church communities sought to help people, help each other, be formed in Christ's image. That's why the Christian calendar exists. It's a way of taking Jesus' life and the teachings of Jesus and actually putting them in our bodies, giving us muscle memory. That's what communion is about, which is why I take communion every week at my church because I don't just want your faith in your head. I want it in, in your body. You are an embodied creature. And you may have a brief period of time where you will not have a body, but then at the resurrection, you will be given a body again because that is what you are, an embodied creature, and that's what you will always be. It'll be a different body than this one, thank the Lord, but a body nonetheless. Questions, thoughts? I have talked too much. Somebody say something. We haven't I, yet. I always like educate if I'm like, oh, Lent is what Catholics do, but we have done. We did Ash Wednesday. Um, I'm very slowly. You know, we're a Pentecostal uh, church, and sure. so the church calendar is quite foreign to most right. of my people, and so I'm very slowly yeah. trying to bring some of these ideas back. Yeah. So we have not really done Lent. Like, I've talked about it a bit, but. Well, both. They, they have a lot of rules, though. Like, you don't pick what you fast over. You do pick something, but the no meat on Fridays, like, they have a lot of rules that are kind of set for you, which I don't necessarily know. They do. Yeah. I like, but I don't know. I'm just really interested in the Christian calendar for some reason. I'm fascinated by it. I really am. My mom started doing it like three weeks ago. Yeah, and it's. It is one thing to give up coffee for Lent or whatever you're going to do. It's another to know why and to engage in the thought process that's included in the 
spiritual practice. Because I'm all about spiritual practices, okay? Um, this is, you know, that I, I want an embodied faith, a practiced faith. I don't just want a faith that lives in my brain or even just in my heart. I want an, a practiced faith, an embodied faith. Uh, I think that's something that the Enlightenment, we threw it away. They all became Cartesians. You guys know what that means? Do you know who Rene Descartes was? Have you ever heard the phrase, I think, therefore I am? <clears throat> okay. Rene Descartes was the man who wrote that phrase in Latin. Cogito ergo sum. Right? No, as a man, French man, uh, the church hired him to prove the existence of God. Uh, yeah, he was, he was a mathematician, and he was a Christian. Um, and he came up with this idea. He had actually lots of really great ideas. There's actually quite a few. He was a genius, by I mean, for sure. But he came up with this idea, I think, therefore, I am, which encapsulates this thought process that we are that was that was a very much a part of the whole enlightenment movement which is why the united states exists by the way um which is the life of the mind and that the life of the mind is very important and i agree that the life of the mind is very important but it's not all there is we're not just our your body is not just a carrier for your brain And the Christianity that was formed in the Enlightenment was a very brain-centered Christianity. Very mind-located Christianity. And there's nothing wrong with Christianity living in your mind. It should. Jesus told us to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind. We're supposed to love the Lord with our mind, but not just with our mind. Also with our emotions and with our bodies. Tomorrow I'll be teaching Romans chapter 12 to my church, as much of it as I can get through. Starts off, in view of the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices. This stuff, God cares about it. And to say that he doesn't is going to lead us down the trail of Gnosticism. Anybody know what Gnosticism is? There is a lot to it. One part of it is that most Gnosticism is dualistic. Yes. <laughs> well, it depends on which Bible school you went to. I went to, I went to, I went to Southwestern Assemblies of God University, and nobody ever said the word Gnosticism to me. So it was only much later, was only much later that I be that I learned. Uh, I I never even learned any real theology at, and I got my degree at Southwestern, and I know they never really even taught me any theology, and. Um, 
Well, I mean, there should be a school that talks about Gnosticism. All the other learning that I've done has just been on my own, just, you know, tracking this stuff down, reading, you know, studying the scriptures. And I, I would really love to, but that would require me actually getting a higher degree than I currently have, and I don't have the time or the money to do so. <laughs> I love you guys. I love hanging out with you. Anyway, Gnosticism says... One of the things Gnosticism says is that the physical is evil and the spiritual is good. And therefore, there were people that went all different ways with that. They would totally, there was like the Stoics who were guys that would just totally deny all physical urges, like drink and eat as little as possible. Just uh, don't get married. Even if you are married, never have sex. Like there was this total like, all physical urges are the devil, right? That was, I'm, I'm serious. That's the way they felt about it. And so because they wanted to focus on the life of the mind and the spirit, that was, that was what they're all about. But then you had the other side of the equation, which said, well, if the body is evil, but my spirit has been renewed, then what my body does doesn't matter. So I can just go do whatever I want. I can sleep with whoever I want. I can eat whatever I want. I can drink and partake whatever I want because the physical is passing away. So what does it even matter? Now, there's some really beautiful grace theologians, and there's some really wacko grace theologians. <laughs> but, because uh, I would consider myself a grace preacher, but I, I want to preach biblical grace. Not, not, uh, not all this other stuff that makes no sense. Again, if you're not being formed in the image of Christ, you are not saved, because that's what it means to be saved. We are saved when we're formed in the image of Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul could say, I'm working out my salvation with fear and trembling. This is the guy that we think of as like, you know, the pinnacle. And he's going, I'm still really, I don't know how this is all going to pan out. Okay? You know, it's, if you're being formed in the image of Christ, you are being saved. And that's great news. If you're not, I'm worried about you. Are you more like Jesus today than you were yesterday? Well, let's let's go bigger than that. Are you more like Jesus today than you were a year ago? That's the real question. I hope so. And are you more in love with Jesus today than you were a year ago? Because that's the question, and that's the kind of thing we need to be asking ourselves. When I think about who I was a year ago, and so this is what Dallas Willard says, and he's one of my faves. He says, spiritual maturity is loving your enemies without trying. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, I don't have enemies. Yes, you do. <laughs> Name one. I don't know who they are. But there are people that threaten, by one means or another, your sense of being and stability. And I want to fight those people. They threaten, you know, and... You know, and, and, and those are the people Jesus has called us to love. Well, this is the reality. If you, don't, if you don't have any enemies, it's because you're not in touch with your emotions. I am a nine on the Enneagram. So, and nines... 
nines and twos, okay, both nines and twos have difficulty recognizing negative feelings towards other people. Okay, we both we both do. Okay, we both. You know, as it we we have difficulty recognizing. You know, we we might be angry with someone, but we we'll always internalize it, like point it back at ourselves. Well, I must have done something wrong. Uh, well, we can do that another another time. But, but the point is, if you if you cannot think of anyone who is a quote unquote enemy, and I don't mean you hate them. Hopefully, you don't hate them. But anyone who is set uh, set against you, that's probably because you're like me, and and you're not really in touch with your own emotions. Right, and that doesn't work. Wow. <laughs> At least some of them. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't know how many would. Although it, it doesn't make sense that free grace people would hate anyone because if, if it doesn't take anything for anybody to be saved, then everybody is saved and therefore everybody's okay. Uh, it's it's fascinating. What's up? I know what we need to do on our next little like take a break from Timothy day. Yeah. The first years haven't done any Well, you know, I asked. I talked to Miss Sophia about it, and she said, "I'll let you know if I want you to do an Enneagram." So. So what? Well, I, I mean, how much time do we have? <laughs> My guess is, my guess is, I would say you're a five. That would be my, that would be my guess. Yeah, but the tests don't matter. Don't listen to the tests. You, you may also be a one. Yeah, I mean, a one would make sense also. But, but, so here's, okay, so some clarifying questions, okay? When it comes to someone that you've recognized they're in the wrong, Okay. Do you have optimism for them to change or no? Okay. Well, I mean, it's a. Sure. Okay. Well, that's probably more of a five perspective than a one. Because a one perspective sees someone that's in the wrong and immediately wants to help them out and believes that they can be much better than, than, than where they're at. That's what. Because that's kind of how. I just don't know if they will. Which is what? What was that? Number seven. A seven. Okay. I yes. I'm, when I'm at my best, I do act like a good seven. Yeah. A good seven. A good seven. A good seven. A healthy seven. But see, then you may be one of the numbers that goes to seven in health. I don't know. I don't know how this works. So, because see, each number of the Enneagram has one number that they that they will pick up the negative the negative parts of that number when they're not 
themselves. Okay, so for instance, I'm a nine. So when I'm not my when I am not myself, when I am compromised and I'm not having a good day, I will pick up some of the negative of a six, which makes me anxious, which makes me rebellious, which makes me like screw you all, I'm leaving. Like that's that's that is that's that's what happens. When, when I'm not, okay, I, be, I pick up some of the negative parts of a six. When I'm in health, when I'm in my full strength, then I pick up some of the positive things of a three, which is the other side of this, which means that I, that I set goals for myself and I want to do things right and do things well and I want to achieve and I want the others to think well of me. So, um, you know, in a good way, not in a uh, depressing way. Uh, way but um, most of the time most of the time nines because the the evil part of me <laughs> I want numbness and sleep and disconnection that's that's the nine thing yeah okay that's that's mine because peace is my primary uh, <laughs> my wife is my wife is a challenger she's an eight like my mom We all know what you are. <laughs> you don't have to tell us. What do you think I am? Uh, I don't know you well enough to know. Well, last year you said no. I was well, a six. Well, I that would make sense. Well, I guess yeah. That would make sense. But I, you're really not supposed to tell people what number they are. But I do it all the time. But you're not supposed to. It's fun. It's fun. The idea is you're supposed to sit with these descriptions and whichever one begins to resonate with you. Now, what I would say is most people do not feel good about their number. Yeah, most people kind of look at their number and they're like, I really don't want to be that, but yes, it sounds like me. Now, eights most of the time are like, that's me and I'm happy about it. That's about the only number that's like, yep, and that, yep. That's, that's, yep, that's me. That's, that's how my wife is. She read the description and she was like, yep, that's me. Yep. Deal with it. She's like, deal with it. If you have a problem with it, that's too bad. I said, said every eight ever. That's I kind of agree with you. I think I have You know who else is a seven? Ross Kinnett, this guy. Oh my gosh. <laughs> But I think I think twos go to seven in health. I think they do. And you should see him filling that baptismal every single Saturday night <laughs> at the church because he lives there. Why do you have to fill the baptismal every night? Because he lives at the church. Well, yeah, but why do you fill it every night? Because they do baptisms like every single week at church. Are you serious? <laughs> at least twice a month because he talks about it all the time. We do it like twice a year. <laughs> We we don't do baptisms nearly that often. Maybe if we had more people getting saved, we would. Doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't help when you don't do altar calls. <laughs> anyway, maybe they just maybe they just do it like when somebody wants to. I don't know because there was once like there was only a week off like every other week for like three weeks in a row he was yeah. posting it, and I was like, Rob, why are you doing this so much? Maybe he just does it for fun. Well, like for us, for us to do, for us to do baptisms is a huge pain in my neck because we use a portable hot tub, 
You know, so I got to blow it up. I got to fill it. I got to do the whole thing. It's just a, oh, it's, it's, and we did it Sunday. We did baptisms. And we haven't done them for six months. No, you just have to get like a big, a Calvin. Yeah. And then you can also use that for like fall festivals. Apple. I like the hot tub thing because the water is nice and warm, which that's a big deal. Yeah. Although, you know, in the early church, they would, they usually did baptisms on Easter, and which in the Northern Hemisphere is usually cold. So a lot of times they would have to break the ice off of the stream. That was the other thing is in the early church, you were not to baptize in still water. It should be living water, moving water. I'm just like, oh. did he get a piece of the cross too? Did he buy a piece of the cross? <laughs> no. Oh. He literally brought it back, and he was like, he was just joking. He was like, so guys, this is. Extra I've had holy people, <laughs> I've I've had people give me vials of water from the Jordan that? River. Oh yeah, I don't know, but I'm like, why why is this special to you? It's no, it's just water. Now there was a day. Okay, there was a day when spiritual geography made a lot more sense, when there were absolutely spiritual entities who had claim to areas of the planet. But as of Jesus' death and resurrection, we, have, we are evicting those spiritual entities. Um, and so I no longer, now Jesus has filled the whole earth with his glory as God has promised that he would. So it's no longer, Israel is no longer. But see, like, you know, Naaman, the, uh, the, the general, the foreign general who came and Elisha healed him of, of his <coughs> leprosy by dunking in the Jordan River seven times. Naaman asked for dirt from Israel to take back with him. Because he wanted to take a little piece of Israel, the place where God is in charge, back with him to his pagan country. And then it made sense. But now, Jesus has reclaimed the earth for himself. It, is no longer, it no longer makes any sense to take water from the Jordan River. And no. I absolutely would. I'd love to go. I want to go to Israel just to be in the place because I'm all about an embodied faith, right? This is where Jesus walked. I want to be where Jesus walked. I want to see these things. I want to experience this stuff. It's going to change the way I think about these stories. But is there anything actually special about that place? You know, people in Israel, like one guy told my dad, you know, prayer is a local call from here, but everywhere else it's long distance. And, and, but like, do no, that's not true at all. Because God exists everywhere, right. right? And so to go and pray at the Wailing Wall yeah. may be something that is a, a profound experience for me, but right. it's not because there's anything special about this wall. Plus, it's a retaining wall. It's not even a part, and may not even be a part of the Temple Mount, although that's a whole other conversation. Because yeah. right. the Temple may have been over in the City of David, which is not even up there where... Right. Yeah. My pastor basically explained that when he did it, too. He was just like, I just want everyone to know, I do not actually think the water is extra holy. I just kind of 
and yet he did it still. Uh, and then drained the baptism. I mean, like, do you keep water in there? Like, for long periods of time, I would think. It would, we just, we take our baptismal down to the basement in between. <laughs> we have a pool party at our youth pastor's house who lives in the parsonage across the street. Do they got a pool there? Yeah. Usually they do baptisms after. I have, I have a pool in my backyard, and, and I've thought about doing baptisms there. I've done practice baptisms with my kids in the pool. I just hold them under until all the demons come out. When I'm at Clum, uh, my best friend, their parents have a membership or like a uh, state pa- uh, park pass. Yeah, so I do too. Um, you can get in for like $3 in McCormick Street's pool. And so we'll all go to the pool together for $3 each. And we'll like do fake baptism- baptisms in the pool. <laughs> Yes, my, my. my dad baptized my siblings in the lake. Or did my dad baptize me in a lake? My I daughter said she was going to be baptized this Sunday, and then she chickened out. Oh. This Sunday? Last like, Sunday. I got and I, baptized she got up and said, I don't want to get baptized today. Well, and I, <laughs> I said, I, I, said, I, said I, I want it to, I, I, I want, I had told her, I want you to want to do it. I want this to mean something to you. So if this, if you don't want to do it, that's fine. But still, I was kind of excited about baptizing her. Oh. Maybe you guys will one day find yourself on a trip baptized. I really want to. And I, I, but I'm not going to go get baptized in the Jordan River because I've already been baptized. I don't need to get baptized again. Yeah, exactly. You know? Uh, no. I'm good. She's 10, and that's why I was like, if you want to get baptized, fine. If not, I mean, it's okay. I was 12 when I got baptized, so it's like... Yeah, I, was, I got baptized again my senior year. I, I, I did believe in Jesus when I was baptized. I just didn't... It was a childlike faith. Yeah, it wasn't something that... Yeah. I had a good friend who got baptized when he was 9 or 10, and then he really... Like he walked away from the Lord for a long time, and it was eighteen years old. He he came back to the Lord, and he was like seventeen, eighteen, and uh, and he got baptized again. And I, I never forget what it, you know, you know. They always yeah, anything you want to say or whatever. And he said, "I was baptized before, and it didn't mean anything. But today, being baptized means everything." And it was just like, man, yeah, that's yeah, that's why you needed to be baptized again. Well, that was it for us guys. It's time to go.